Well, it's good to be back with you guys this weekend, and if no one has said it yet, let me be the first one to say happy Easter to you. We are here celebrating an incredible, incredible day, and I know what you're thinking, Mike. It's not that exciting. It's not that happy of an Easter this year, and I get it. All of the weird things going on, the isolation, having, having to be stuck at home. In fact, uh, I think probably if the coronavirus would have hit first century Jerusalem, maybe this is probably what the Last Supper would have looked like. Yeah, and I get that, I get that. In fact, you know, here at Hope, it looks like this. This is actually Neil. He's getting further away every weekend. I'm speaking at the Apex campus. He's actually at the Raleigh campus. That's how isolated we're getting here at Hope Community Church. But I'm telling you, it's still the best day of the year if you are a Christian. And this is kind of a unique Easter because it is putting some things in, into perspective. For example, uh, often we think that Easter is about getting a new outfit. When I was growing up, no matter how poor we were, we always got new clothes, and that's continued into my adulthood. And maybe that's been the case for you. Probably hasn't happened this year. I mean, I'm guessing that some of you ladies, you probably figured out how to go online and get a new Easter outfit. Not what you would typically wear. It's probably something more like this. This is probably more appropriate for how you're celebrating Easter at home uh, today. But that's okay. That's okay. And we, we haven't had, probably we're not going to have any big Easter egg hunts. And, and that's too bad because we all love a good Easter egg hunt. I love peeps. I haven't gotten any peeps this year. I'm going to survive. It is the best day of the year because, see, honestly, as Christians, we are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you need to know that if you're a Christian, see, for, the, for us, this is, kind of like, this is kind of like our Super Bowl. And I know what some of you are thinking. Well, well, Mike, wait a second. What about Christmas? Christmas seems like a bigger holiday than Easter. We celebrate Christmas a lot more than we celebrate Easter. We decorate the inside of our house, the outside of our house. We exchange gifts. We go around singing Christmas carols about the baby Jesus. And I get that. Nobody loves Christmas more than I love Christmas. But think about it this way. Christmas was all about Jesus being born. We've all done that. We've all been there and done that. But see, this is my guess. None of us have actually died, been buried, and then three days later come back to life. And if you're sitting here listening and maybe you're not a Christian, uh, you're probably still thinking, I get it, but I don't understand what the hoopla of Easter is all about. And if that's the case, it's probably because what you know about Christianity is that maybe a class you took when you were in school, a class on ancient history, and if you took the class, they probably said something like this, around 25 AD, uh, during a lot of political turmoil, a teacher named Jesus from Nazareth showed up on the scene in Jerusalem. He got together some followers. He began to go around and teach stuff that people had never, ever heard before. It caused all kinds of commotion. So the woman, Roman authorities, they arrested Jesus. They charged him with treason, and then they sentenced him to die on a cross. That's probably all you heard about Christianity. The problem is this. That may make sense historically, but how do you account for everything that's happened since then? I mean, how do you account for the fact that, that Jesus' teachings have gone all over the world? How do you account for the fact that over half the world believes that Jesus is the Son of God? How do you account for the fact that this weekend there are billions of people celebrating the fact that Jesus rose from the dead? I mean, how do you explain that? You can't explain it away by just saying, well, Jesus must have been a really, really, really good teacher, and he must have really had some really, really devout, devoted followers. I mean, the reality is this. There's been a lot of great teachers who have had a lot of devoted followers, but you know what? They didn't end up changing the world. By the way, let me just tell you this. Initially, Jesus' followers, they weren't that devoted. They weren't that devout. In fact, when Jesus died on the cross, you got to understand, their dream died with him. See, Jesus had been telling them for months, I'm going to die, and then three days later, 
I am going to rise from the dead. None of his disciples believed that. I promise you this. Three days after Jesus was put in the tomb, his disciples were not standing outside that tomb with some fresh clothes, you know, dinner reservations at Jesus' favorite restaurant to celebrate the resurrection. They weren't holding hands saying five, four, three, two, one, because none of those guys thought that Jesus was, was going to actually come back to, to life. So I tell you, when Jesus died, they scattered like rats on a sinking ship because they thought, you know what? Jesus died, we could be next. But this is what's interesting. After the resurrection, those same guys that were cowards, those same guys that deserted Jesus, that forgot about everything he had taught them, if you study history, you discover that they ended up dying for what they believed, what they had witnessed, what they had seen after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, how do you explain that? My point is simply this. What you learned in school, the explanation that Jesus showed up on the scene, that he taught, that he died, it just doesn't cut it. It doesn't happen. What what, it, doesn't ha it doesn't explain what happened then. It doesn't explain what has happened since then. And maybe the only reason you're watching this weekend is because the person that you're living with kind of took over the TV and they tuned into this Easter service. And you're not a bad person. I mean, you're not against church. You're not against religion. You're not against Jesus. In fact, you may like Jesus. You may even be impressed with the teachings of Jesus. But the idea that a man died and came back to life, you just can't get there. And I get that. I mean, I understand that. That defies human logic. But my question to you this weekend would be this. How do you explain what happened? How do you explain the last 2,000 years of history? What do you, how do you explain what's happened in the lives of some of the people, maybe in your family, maybe your coworkers, maybe your neighbors, how their lives have been totally transformed and changed? Well, this Easter, I want to push you a little bit. And I want to let you know up front, my goal is not to convince you to believe in the resurrection. It's not to try to talk you into being a Christian. I'm telling you, I've, I've talked to a lot of people in my life, and many times I've asked them, how did you become a Christian? No one has ever said to me, you know, I lost an argument, and so I became a Christian. See, it's, it's not that way. At the end of the day, it's a faith thing. What I want to do over the next few minutes is I want to help narrow that gap so maybe that faith that step of faith is just a little bit easier for you to take. And I want to do it by asking you this question. I want you to think about this. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, how do you explain everything that's happened? If he didn't rise from the dead, how do you explain all that we just talked about? His teachings all over the world. The billions of people that believe that he's the son of God. The fact that we're celebrating 2,000 years later that he rose from the dead. How do you explain those things? And you may be thinking, I've never really put a lot of thought into it, but I bet there's a pretty simple, logical explanation. Well, I just want you to know that people have been trying to explain away the resurrection of Jesus Christ since the day it happened 2,000 years ago. And I'll give you a little bit of a spoiler alert. It's not that simple. I mean, there are all kinds of conspiracy theories that have been floating around for years about how it happened. In fact, the very first conspiracy theory to explain away the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually appears in the Bible. And the theory is this. Somebody stole the body. And that makes perfect sense. Many people witnessed the fact that Jesus' body was put in a tomb, that a stone was rolled in place in the front of that tomb. Three days later, the tomb was obviously empty. So the natural thought was somebody had to steal the body. And maybe that's, maybe that's your first thought. That's what you're thinking. And I don't want to disappoint you, but it's not original with you. Let me show you. Matthew chapter 27, it says in verse 62, the next day, the one after preparation day, 
which would have been the day after the crucifixion, the day, uh, the, the day after the burial of Jesus. It says, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, the deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. The last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guards. So understand that the Jewish authorities, they remembered when Jesus was alive that he had predicted his death and his resurrection. And they thought that after he was buried, these disciples, these, these, these sleazy little guys, right, they might be up to no good. So they go to the Roman authorities and they say, you got to do something about it. And so the Roman authorities, they sign men to guard the tomb. And then they put the seal over the tomb. Now understand, the seal wasn't like cement. It wasn't like Gorilla Glue. It was literally just a string. And on each side of the widest part of the tomb, it would have been pushed in the wax. And then the imprint of Caesar would have also been pushed into that wax. And understand, the string wasn't powerful, but that signet was. And if you broke that seal, I'm telling you, you had to deal with one angry Roman ruler. And so the guards, they're placed there to make sure that nobody gets near that tomb. Now, let me tell you how important their job was. If you were a Roman guard in the first century and you were on sentry duty and you fell asleep, your uniform was set on fire. That's pretty serious. I actually think we should probably try that at church. I think that would prevent people from sleeping. But we'll, we'll discuss that before we get back together. But notice what happens in the story, Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. After the Sabbath, at the dawn of the first day of the week, that would be Sunday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. In other words, they lost consciousness. They passed out. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid. Now, I'm just going to tell you, if I'm one of the women, I'm thinking too late, okay? All of this is going on. Do not be afraid, for they know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. And then go quickly and tell his disciples, he is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Verse 11. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, in other words, here's your first conspiracy. They gave the soldiers a large sum of money telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and we will keep you out of trouble. Verse 15, so the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Why, why did Matthew add that, to this very day? It's because Matthew wrote the book of Matthew 25 years after these events took place. And this is what he was saying. 25 years later, this is what they're saying. That's our story, and we're sticking with it. Somebody stole the body. Now, let's just entertain this idea uh, that the pro 
uh, Jesus' forces stole the body. In other words, they, they overpowered the best trained soldiers in the world. They pushed away what was probably a two-ton stone. They grabbed the body of Jesus and took off with it. They hid it somewhere. They gathered up at Starbucks and said, what are we going to do? What are we going to say? And they came up with the idea, we'll just tell everybody that he rose from the dead. Do we all agree? We all agree. Then they head back to Jerusalem telling everybody that Jesus is alive, that he's risen from the dead. Now, earlier I shared with you that history has recorded that every one of these disciples who earlier were cowards, who were earlier like scattered like rats on a sinking ship when Jesus died, history tells us that every one of these disciples went on and died being followers of Jesus Christ, sticking to their story. And I share this most Easter because I think it's one of the best proofs of the resurrection. Let me tell you what happened to these guys. Matthew was martyred in Ethiopia with a sword. Mark died in Egypt. He, he was drugged by horses through the streets of Alexandria until he was dead. Luke was hanged in Greece by preaching about Jesus. Peter was crucified upside down. James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, was thrown off the southeast pinnacle of the temple. It was about a hundred-foot drop. The drop didn't kill him, and so some soldiers clubbed him to death. James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded in Jerusalem. Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, was an, a missionary to Asia. We now know it as Turkey. He was beat to death with a whip when he was preaching about Jesus. Andrew was crucified after being whipped by seven soldiers. He literally hung on for two days until he died. Thomas was stabbed to death with a spear while preaching in India. Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, was killed by arrows when he wouldn't deny his faith. Matthias, that's who took Judas's place after he defected, he was stoned and beheaded. Paul was tortured and then beheaded by Emperor Nero. The only one who wasn't martyred was John. And John was banished to the Isle of Patmos where he died. My point is simply this. All these guys died not just for what they believed, but what they had seen and what they witnessed after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let me just ask you a question. Would you die for a hoax? You see, if I'm a disciple, okay, and it's a hoax, if I'm a disciple and I'm in on it, right, and we stole the body of Jesus and hid the body somewhere and then went around proclaiming, you know, maybe to get some book sales or whatever, that Jesus had risen from the dead, when they're taking me into the Colosseum, okay, when they're getting ready to feed me to the lions or may, maybe burn me at the stake, I'm like, hold that match, okay? I'm coming clean. I'm singing like a canary. I'm turning state's evidence. I'm going to show them where we hid that body of Jesus. This is what's interesting. Every one of these men died, and none of them ever renounced it. It kind of destroys that explanation. You know, this, this coronavirus has brought all the conspiracy theories around the world back. And sometimes I'm sitting around with my staff, and I have one staff member. He believes that we didn't land on the moon. And so I, I, after we had kind of gone round and round, I, I, we were talking the other day. I finally concluded by saying, this is why I think we landed on the moon. Because for us not to have landed on the moon, there would have to be probably hundreds, maybe even thousands of people in on this conspiracy and not a one of them has ever had a deathbed confession where they said, hang on, right before I die, if, if you'll go to my safety deposit box at Bank of America, you'll find evidence that we didn't land on the moon. We actually shot the whole thing in a sound studio. To me, that is the greatest evidence that one day in the past we did land on the moon. And here we find it with the disciples. At one time, they, they, deserted, they deserted Jesus. They, they gave up the dream, but then they ended up dying. What changed? Well, I'll tell you what changed. They saw a man die, 
And then he came back to life. And see, when you see that, that changes everything. You're like, see, I, I want to be on that guy's team. Well, you think, well, if the disciples didn't take the body of Jesus, maybe the Jewish authorities, or maybe the Roman authorities, maybe they took the body of Jesus. This brings up the question, why? I mean, that's exactly what they didn't want to happen. Plus, when the disciples were going around Jerusalem saying, Jesus is risen, Jesus is risen, all they had to do was produce the body, produce the corpse of Jesus, and, and their claims crumble. So that explanation kind of falls apart. And maybe about now you're starting to realize Wow, it's not really all that easy to explain away the missing body of Jesus. Especially, think about this. When the Bible says that there were 10 specific, I'm sorry, 10 specific appearances by Jesus after the resurrection. And again, all kinds of theories, all kinds of explanations as to how this happened. One is the hallucination theory. People didn't really see Jesus. They were just so emotionally distraught. Their, their, their sorrow was so deep and so heavy. They thought they saw him. And I get that. I, I've actually had that experience with people who have lost someone close to them, people who have lost a, a loved one. But see, it's not what we're talking about here. It's not just one person having a hallucination. In fact, this is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. That means that there are 500 people having the same hallucination at the very same time. I'm telling you, those are some potent, powerful brownies. And some of you know what I'm talking about, right? 500 people hallucinating at the same time. And then he goes on to say, most of whom are still living. So understand, this isn't, this, this isn't some guy coming home from work and say, hey, honey, I, I, I was on the subway and I think I saw Jesus. And she's like, you're an idiot. Last week you thought you saw Elvis at the mall. It's not like that at all. Paul says, 500 people saw him at the same time, and he says most of them are still living. In other words, you can still go to Jerusalem. You can find these people. You can buy them a cup of coffee, and they will tell you their story. So the hallucination theory doesn't hold water. And then there's a swoon theory. The swoon theory just says that Jesus never actually died. He was beaten within an inch of his life. He was nailed to a cross. Maybe because of loss of blood, you know, maybe after they stabbed him with the spear, they thought he was dead. Maybe he lapsed into a coma, but he wasn't really dead. But they wrapped him up like a mummy. They put him in a tomb. They put a two-ton stone over the tomb. Somehow, maybe in the coolness of the tomb, Jesus revived, somehow miraculously unwrapped himself, moved the two-ton stone, walked out and like, you know, I'm back, right? That doesn't really hold water. But my favorite conspiracy is the twin brother theory. Evidently, Jesus had an identical twin brother. Maybe they even had the same last name. Maybe one was Jesus and one was Jesus. I don't know, right? But Jesus died, and then Jesus shows up and says, actually, I'm Jesus. I'm the risen Savior. And you know what? It takes more faith to believe that than it does to actually believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, let's be honest. None of these explanations hold water. They didn't hold water in that culture then. They don't explain what's happened in our culture now. And I say that because I really believe the greatest proof of the resurrection is that Jesus Christ continues to change the lives of men and women and children. In other words, his life continues to bring change in people's lives. I've been a pastor for a long time. I've heard this story so many times. I used not to get it. I didn't believe in Jesus, I didn't believe in God, I didn't read the Bible, but then finally one day the light came on and now I get it. Why is that? We believe 
We believe that Jesus is alive. We believe that Jesus is still working in the hearts and the lives of people. And that's what Easter is all about. It's about a risen Savior who continues to work in the hearts and lives of people all over the world. Now, just so you know, that's kind of the story of the Bible. The Bible is really nothing more than an epic love story where God created mankind and he created him in his image. He created mankind in a relationship with him. But man sinned and man broke that relationship. And the rest of the Bible is nothing more than an epic love story of God pursuing mankind, trying to bring mankind back into a relationship with himself. Because God knew that he created us to be in a relationship with him. And this is where Jesus, and this is where Christmas, and this is where Easter all comes in. 2,000 years ago, God looked down at humanity. He looked at the world. He looked at the mess that we had made of our lives. And he thought, I got to do something. They're never going to figure out how to be in a relationship with me. They don't even want to be in a relationship with me. They can't be in a relationship with me. I need to send somebody to earth to help them. And as I've said before, when he looked at us and he saw our mess, if we would have needed a life coach, he would have sent us Oprah or Dr. Phil. If we would have needed financial assistance, maybe he would have sent us Dave Ramsey. If we would have just needed entertainment so we would be happier and enjoy life more, maybe he would send us Bruno Mars. That guy can entertain. But God looked at us 2,000 years ago and he thought, wow, what they need is saving. So I'm going to send them, I'm going to send them a savior. By the way, just in case you didn't know what you need saving, I need saving. I mean, let's be honest, we can't save ourselves from the day-to-day -day issues of life. We can't save ourselves from the coronavirus. What makes us think that we can save ourselves in such a way that somehow we can earn our way back into a relationship with God, that somehow we can take care of our eternity so that we get to go to heaven and spend all eternity with God? We can't do that. So Jesus came that first Christmas. That's why the angels say, unto, born, unto us is born today in the city of David. What? A savior. Not a king, not an emperor, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And do you remember what they said? They said it's good news. You know what the word good news means? It's the gospel. The gospel came, and it's good news of great joy for all people. And so, yes, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and he grew up, but Jesus understood that every step he took across Palestine and throughout Judea, that he was one step closer to his ultimate destination of dying on the cross. Why? To pay once and for all for our sins. And then three days later, rising from the dead to verify and validate, I am the Son of God who can take away the sins of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the only one who can restore you and reconcile you back into a relationship with God. That's the miracle of Easter. And you may be thinking about now, Mike, honestly, I don't know if it happened and, and I don't really care. Because either way, it doesn't impact my life. But you got to understand, this isn't like whether or not we landed on the moon. I mean, when I get into conversations like this, often I will say, you know, I don't know, I don't care. It doesn't change my life one iota. But see, the resurrection of Jesus is so much different. There's so, there's so, it, it, there's so much hanging in the balance. I mean, we're talking about the life that God wants you to live now. Not only that, when you die, the assurance of knowing that you get to go to a place called heaven to live forever and ever with a God who is head over heels in love with you. So this doesn't fall into the category of I don't know and I don't care because I'm telling you, you, not, you know and I know 2,000 years ago something happened. My guess about now is some of you are thinking, I, I, I sort of suspect it's true. I'm just not really sure I want to know. Because if Jesus really did rise from the dead, that means I've got to acknowledge that there is a God. 
I probably am going to have to submit my life to this God because only God could actually pull this off. And so it's not that you don't believe. You know what it is? It's you're trying not to believe because it's just a little bit threatening to you. Your concern is this. What are the implications of being in a relationship with God? And if God really sent Jesus to be my Savior, now i got to make a decision. Do I accept it or do I reject it? Because you know what happens if you recept, accept it, if it's true. But if you reject it, I mean, that's a little bit risky because you're thinking, mm, if I reject it and it is true, it may not end well. By the way, if that's you, if that describes you, you know, like I just think it may be true, I just don't want to know. Isn't that just a little bit about uh, not, isn't that a little bit like not maybe wanting to go to the doctor when we think maybe something's wrong with our health? We think something's wrong with us physically. We don't want to go to the doctor because the doctor might confirm our suspicion that we have a health problem. And I get it, men. That's kind of the way we are wired. There are times in my life I just don't want to know. A couple of years ago, um, I found a lump in my chest uh, when I was showering one day. And I thought, wow, I don't really want to know what that is. I don't want to go to the doctor. I didn't tell anybody. I didn't even tell my wife. And finally, a few months later, I went in for my annual physical. And when I was finished with everything, my doctor says, is there anything else you have any concerns about? And I said, well, you know what? I might as well say it. I I found this lump in my chest. And she said, like, how long ago? And I said, like, months ago. And she said, lay back down on the table. So I lay down. She said, oh, that's definitely a lump. And she said, we need to get you in for a sonogram. Somebody will call you to set it up. And so about two hours later, I get a phone call, and they're calling me, and they say, Mr. Lee, we want to set you up for your mammogram. I'm like, mammogram? I'm not getting a mammogram. They called me about getting a sonogram. They told me I was going to get a sonogram. And they're like, no, you're going to get a mammogram. And I remember saying, ma'am, I got no ma'am to gram, right? And by the way, I got a whole new appreciation for what you ladies have to go through. But I finally went in for my mammogram, and I found out it was really nothing more than a fatty tumor. But I'm, I tell you what, I'm so glad I found that out. I had so much peace when I found that out. I'm so glad I went to the doctor. And we kind of hear that all the time, right? You know what we never hear? We never hear somebody say, man, I'm sure glad I didn't go to the doctor. We never hear anybody say, I am so glad I put that off. You never hear that. You're like, I am so glad I found out it was nothing. I'm so glad I found it in time. And I think in the same way, I've never heard anybody say, wow, I am so glad that I put off investigating the claims of Jesus. Do you know what I hear as a pastor? I hear this. Wow, I wish somebody would have told me this sooner. I I wish that I would have discovered this before now because, see, if I would have discovered this earlier in my life, my life would have been so much different. If I would have discovered this earlier, my marriage would be so different. If I would have discovered this early, I might still be married. If I discovered this early, my family would be so different. But it's more like I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish. And so this Easter, I just want to nudge you and say, something happened. Something happened. What happened? What's your explanation? And does your explanation really hold water? And does it explain what's taken place over the past 2,000 years? years. Now, as Christians, we believe the explanation is pretty simple. We believe that Jesus is alive, and we believe that when he rose from the dead the first Easter, he started a movement that continues to this day. So what I want to do this Easter, I want to encourage you just to take the next step to investigate what really happened. And maybe you're wondering, well, how do you take the next step? Well, let me just put a slide up here. You can go to gethope.net backslash next, and there's a list of things you can do there to take that next step. But let me give you something that might be simple to do. If you have a Bible in your home, many Americans do, people watching all over the world, you probably have a Bible. 
Go to that Bible. If you don't have one, you can download one on your phone. You can, you can get it on your computer. And understand the Bible is, is, is broken up into two sections. There's an old section and, and the Old Testament. There's a newer section, the New Testament. Go to the New Testament. The first book in the New Testament is Matthew. Go to the fourth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're not the Beatles, okay? These are the gospel writers. Find the gospel of John and just start reading it. And you're like, well, Mike, that's a problem because I don't really believe that the Bible is true. Do you know what I've discovered? Most people who don't believe the Bible is true have never actually read the Bible. It's kind of like me when it comes to mushrooms. I have determined I hate mushrooms. I will not eat mushrooms. You know what's interesting? Never tasted a mushroom. But I am 100% confident that I don't like them. And I think maybe in the same way, the reason you don't really believe the Bible is because you've never actually taken the time and you've read the Bible. But see, you owe it to yourself to come up with an explanation. And the worst thing that's going to happen by you reading the Bible and spending some time reading it is that you're going to read a bestseller. I mean, it's only been a bestseller since like 1611. But you know what might happen? What might happen is as you read you might discover something in your heart and your mind beginning to say, you know what, there might be something to this. So just start to read the Gospel of John. You know, just get to know the story of Jesus. And as you're reading through the Gospel, just keep in mind something happened. And there may be a part of you that, like, I really don't want to know what happened, but there's too much at stake not to know. So read it, discover you may be amazed at what God does in the process. And after reading it, say, for three weeks or 30 days, if you don't see anything differently, then just forget it. Just put it aside. But do it for 30 days. By the way, you're quarantined at home. You're stuck at home. What else are you going to do? Read it for 30 days. You can't keep re-watching Tiger King. I'm telling you, Carol fed her husband to the, to the tigers, right? You're, she's never going to admit it. So quit watching it, right? Read it for 30 days. There's not that much to lose, but I'm telling you, there is a whole lot to gain. Now, before we wrap up, let me just say this. Some of you sitting and listening, you're like, you've been on this journey, and maybe, maybe this is the time, maybe this is the Easter where you're like other people that I've talked to. It's like, I get it. I didn't get it before but now I get it. I'm like, what do I do? Well, Paul made it very simple. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. He says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that's the first Easter, you will be saved. Think of it this way. Most of us, if we're honest, in the back of our mind, we got a backup plan in case there is a God. So we're trying to do some good things in our life. You know, hopefully when we stand before God, the scale will tip in our favor. We'll get at least a C minus and he'll invite us into heaven. So what you're doing is you're trusting in yourself and what you can do. So instead of trusting in you and what you can do, you transfer your trust to who Jesus Christ is, the son of God who died for your sins. And you trust in what he has already done for you. You declare it with your mouth. You believe in your heart and you will be saved. And you just talk to God. You talk to him like you would talk to anybody else. You tell him you know you're a sinner. You tell him you know to be, you need to be forgiven of your sin. And you accept Jesus as your savior and what he did on the cross to pay for your sins. And you believe that he rose from the dead to prove that he was the one who could provide a way back into a relationship with you. You just talk to God. And at that moment, you will be saved. Now I'm gonna tell you, that's how you really celebrate Easter. 
regardless of the circumstances you're facing. It'll change your life. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for your gift to us of a son. Not just so that we could celebrate his birth. Jesus never even told us to celebrate his birth. But later on, when he instituted communion, he said, as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. It was his death that brought him to this earth. It was his life, the resurrection, that gives us life. And I pray for all of those who are listening that have never made that decision, that they would at least be honest with enough enough for themselves to say, you know, I, I look to myself to come up with an explanation and begin this process, this journey. And Father, we can't wait to see what you're going to do in the hearts and lives of people all over the world this weekend. Churches that are proclaiming the gospel all over the world this weekend. May lives be changed. May they be transformed because of your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray all of this in his holy name. Amen.